it's very muddled and it's a confused it's not a message song it's like the voices in my head song and the paranoid the paranoid Meryl song Um, and I think that that's to say you know from the beginning of Two Nerds the music felt very vulnerable and very confusing That's Meryl Garbus from Tune Yards. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I talk with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Over the last couple of years, I've been really struggling to make sense of what's happening in our country. Maybe you can relate. <laughs> this is a place to hear how artists are making sense of what's going on. And it's a place where artists can speak their truths. Meryl Garbus is my guest on this first episode of Same Wavelength. I want to share with you a little bit about myself so you know what I'm bringing to this work and where my head is at these days and, and share some intentions that I have for this podcast. If, if that's not of interest to you, you know, by all means, you can skip ahead and jump to around the seven minute mark where my conversation with Meryl begins. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Michael. One of the reasons I turn to the artists and the art that I turn to is because, honestly, it makes me feel less alone. For me, talking with artists is a super useful source of of energy and discovery. And I'm realizing there's so much to learn from artists about how to navigate our world during trying times. I think artists can teach us how to better connect with our history, how to better connect with one another when we're feeling disconnected and overwhelmed. I recently moved to Los Angeles from Massachusetts, and Same Wavelength is inspired by previous work that I was doing at a radio station in Massachusetts. I I started talking with musicians on the radio about politics, and, well, the conservative radio executives weren't so happy about some of that content. I also don't really think the radio is is the right medium for these conversations. You know, I was tired of having to cut them up into little sound bites because I think that they deserve to take on a longer form. I'm really concerned about the increased marginalization and discrimination that certain groups of people in this country are facing right now based on their race, their class, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion. I'm concerned about the urgency of our environmental crisis and, and how it's going to most impact the most vulnerable populations in this country and, and around the world for that matter. And I'm actively trying to figure out my relationship to these issues. As a middle class, straight, white male born in this country, my privilege has protected me throughout the first 30 years of my life and, and it continues to protect me from being personally marginalized or oppressed. Which is why I feel like I have a responsibility to to be talking about these issues. Obviously, injustice and oppression are by no means new concepts in America. Uh, But with this administration's current attack on women's reproductive rights, uh, a complete lack of accountability to address the ways in which mass incarceration and police brutality disproportionately affect people of color, the horrible, inhumane treatment of children and families at our southern border. Uh, I just These are just a few things on my mind right now. It, it feels like, given all of this, it feels like it's a good time to be talking about some of the pressing issues that our country faces right now. 
And I don't mean to only point out the negative. Same wavelength is going to be a place to focus on the joy and the hope and the beauty that exists all around us, particularly that which can come from art. I'm finding that making a podcast is a lot. It's, it's a lot of work. And I'm trying really hard to find my voice in this process and figure out the best way for me to be sharing the microphone. I'm definitely not unbiased in my approach, and I intend for this to be a place where I can learn and be introduced to new ideas and hopefully be proven wrong as well. I hope and I assume that you won't agree with everything presented here, either by me or the artists. I I think that would be pretty boring if you did. So I invite you to, to stay as open to these conversations as possible. I have a lot of questions surrounding this project. Should I be talking with more people who I I disagree with and who disagree with me? Are there certain voices that deserve to be heard more and louder than others right now? How can I honor someone as an individual while also simultaneously acknowledging that we're all part of larger group identities? Am I overly obsessed with race? Am I overly obsessed with identity politics? Is this mess that our country is in right now, is it inevitable that we're here given our country's history? How can I feel most empowered to speak my truth while making space for others to do the same? In no way do I claim to have the answers, clearly. I I usually end a conversation with more questions than I begin with, so I acknowledge that this is very much a learning process for me. And I see Same Wavelength as an invitation to myself to, to stay as open and vulnerable in this process as possible. Because of the timeline that it took me to launch this podcast, some of these first few conversations are between six months to a year old. Given the fact that you know, we can turn on the TV or read the news these days and feel like we are just totally on a different planet. At first, I was nervous that that some of these conversations would start to get stale or sound outdated, but I found that they tend to focus on larger systemic topics that transcend our, our fleeting and lightning fast news cycle. I'm super proud of these conversations. I think they really cover some interesting ground with some pretty incredible people Listening back to them now is awesome for me because it reminds me of the continued relevance of certain topics throughout time, sadly, sometimes. (laughs) With this, I I hope that Same Wavelength might offer an opportunity for you, like it has for me, to slow down a little bit and to breathe and to rethink and reflect amid our oftentimes distracting media consumption. Lastly, I'm really grateful for your ears. There's so many places to be directing your attention these days so it means so much that you're, you're here with me. And so I thank you for that. My guest on episode one of Same Wavelength. This is Meryl from Tunyard. Meryl Garbus from Tunyards. Meryl, like myself, is from New England. In fact, she went to Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where I lived for many years and actually where I recorded this phone conversation from. Meryl has released four records under the name Tune Yards. Her records have appeared in year-end best-of lists from places including Pitchfork, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone, New York Times, NPR, Village Voice. Her latest record came out in early 2018 called I Can Feel You Creep Into My Private Life. I spoke with Meryl right after the record came out, so, so we got to focus a bit on it throughout our conversation together. Anything that's referenced throughout our conversation, a song, a book, you can find all of that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And I put those show notes there because I hope that this podcast can be for you like it is for me, uh, a place of discovery. Here's my conversation with Meryl Garbus from Tune Yards on Same Wavelength. 
Hello. Hi, is this Meryl? Yeah, it is. Hi, Meryl. It's Michael Sokol calling from Northampton, Massachusetts. My goodness. I'm, I do miss Northampton, Massachusetts. Oh, so nice of you to say. Yeah, you spent some time here. A lot, a lot of time there, yep. Yeah. So good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for some of your time today. I'm really excited to talk to you. So just to give you a quick little background, I'm doing this podcast where I'm talking to musicians and artists about how they're processing what's going on in the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how it affects their creative process, and really just trying to create a dialogue around the issues that we face right now and talk about how art fits into all of that. Yeah. Um, Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's stuff you think about on a minute, ba- a minutely basis. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll start by asking you if there's anything you want to start the conversation with, something that is on your mind weighing you down or exciting you uh, that you'd like to start with. Well, you know, I think one thing that I think about often is the people's, different people's experience of this current moment in history in our country. Yeah. So it's interesting because I feel, you know, I feel like I've, I've, it's been really interesting to, to hear about other musicians dealing with political themes and, you know, even just the, the fact that we're doing an interview specifically on, on this topic, it, it makes me wonder, you know, first of all, that, you know, for a lot of musicians, being political as part of music has been inherent in who they are and what they've always done. And just the, the fact that, you know, suddenly for, you know, me as a white cisgender woman, there's a lot that I'm feeling come up in um, the political sphere. But I wonder for other musicians, um, you know, how this, does, does this feel new or does this feel like more of the same or does it feel like more of the same, just really a lot more intense? Um, yeah. I think, you know, specifically about, you know, white supremacy and white supremacists uh, and racists rearing their ugly heads more boldly these days. But um, for people of color, knowing that that was there so much of the time before. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I mean, it's something I'm thinking a lot about as someone who, yeah, I, you know, this is it definitely feels like a, a moment of awakening for me politically, but you're right. I mean, a lot of people have been fighting this fight and, and dealing with this struggle for a long time. And it's nothing new for many groups of people. Yeah. And, I, you know, I guess it's, yeah, it feels like a lot of people, myself included, are starting to wake up and see things in a, a new way. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, to the point where I felt, you know, I think on our last album, I heard some different reactions to say our song real thing where i said i come from the land of slaves let's go redskins let's go braves i feel like there are a lot of people who are like oh she can't get away with saying that it felt you know that maybe it feels too i don't know what it felt like to some people too too obvious too in your face confrontational um, right and and it's and that same song you know however many years later i feel like resonates with certain people in a much different way I'm the real thing. They say I'm the real thing. I sound like the real thing. Singing real loud like the real thing. Making them proud like the real thing. I come from the land of slaves. Let's go, Redskins. Let's go, Braves. You want the truth in tones? Dig this dirt and sift out the bones. They said I'm the real thing. I sound like the real thing. Jokes on you. All is skew. Heard my name in Timbuktu. You know, even the fact that. As political, like, Tunyards has been 
pretty political the whole its whole existence. So even just the fact that right now it seems to be, you know, kind of the same themes that I've been touching on album by album suddenly feel really a lot more relevant to to some to certain people now than they have in the past. So, yeah. Really, well, the interesting thing in sort of the bizarre, I don't know if you want to call it silver lining of of this administration is Trump has brought the debates of racism and sexism right to the surface um, and this sort of this fantasy. And I, lo- I mean, you're uh, yeah, totally like you've been writing about this f- since, you know, your first record Bird Brains and speaking specifically about race, this fantasy of like this post racial America that so many of us were so comfortable with mm-hmm. is getting torn apart. And it feels like to me a pretty necessary fracturing. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff is kind of bubbling up. Um, I don't know. It's really an interesting yeah, time. It really is. And and I think that I've been, the past couple of days, I've been reminded of this acronym, WAIT, for why am I talking? Yes, yes. And, and I I think that's that's the other part of this that, that I wonder about. And that that's where kind of my, it's not even self-doubt. It's kind of just this trying to have a real humility around what, is valuable to add to these conversations, particularly in art. Mm. So, you know, I've thought a lot about, you know, as a, as a woman talking about being a woman in this, in this culture, because I think a lot of women are kind of, you know, the, the Me Too movement has really called women to raise their hands in solidarity with each other about their experiences with harassment and assault. And I had a big conversation yesterday about, Yes, and where is it useful for me to be quiet and listen? Mm. Where is it useful for me to amplify the experiences of of people that I I haven't you know been paying attention to? For instance, I heard from a native fan who's who's living in a, a California native community, and um, and she shared her experience with playing this album for her friends in her community and their reaction to it. And, you know, where are the stories that are not, again, my, my, my story is often going to be however non-mainstream I think I am. I'm pretty mainstream, you know, I'm, again, white, I'm married to a, a, a dude, a white dude. <laughs> I live in a very, you know, upper middle class lifestyle here in Oakland, California. Where are the stories that, that are, um, are not being heard in the mainstream so much and, where are the moments where I use my exposure and and privilege to to amplify those stories instead of my own story, you know? And then, you know, I think that was the question on this album, where is my experience as as a white woman and, and the confusion and pain of that useful to share with other people, perhaps? Yeah. What, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> spot on. <laughs> Yeah, what a challenge, right? I mean, it's 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 weird because I think wanting to, um, I don't know, if speak for is the right word, but but you know, to highlight the voices of those who feel marginalized and unheard, mm-hmm. um, where that becomes self-aggrandizement. It's a fine line, right? Oh, totally, and right, and also the the whole issue, you know, an issue that I often deal with in producing this radio show that I've been working on, um, which highlights the work of a lot of women of color, you know, specifically. Um, Super cool. Which feels 
thank you, feels awesome. And also is, you know, it gets into this real dangerous territory of token, to, token, totally. tokenizing. Yeah, right on, right uh, on. And, and I, you know, something that I've been thinking about, though, is really the self-focus, you know, I think, because I think, I mean, you, you almost said, said speak for, and I think that's where we get into trouble yeah. as white people. I'm, I am assuming that you're white. I yeah. have not met you before. Yeah. No, I'm a white, um, cisgendered male living in okay. Northampton. <laughs> yep, I kind of figured. <laughs> yeah. Just to pause quickly, if you're wondering what does cisgender mean, and if you are already familiar with that, I hope I get this right. Cisgender is a term that is sometimes abbreviated as cis, C-I-S, and it describes someone whose gender identity matches the sex that they were assigned at birth. So I identify as a man, and I was assigned male as my sex at birth, so I'm a cis male. Cis is a Latin prefix that means on the same side of, and so you have cis, and then you have trans, which is a Latin prefix meaning across from or on the other side of. Someone who identifies as transgender has a gender identity that differs from the sex that they were assigned at birth. And by the way, it is mostly white cis males that I'm talking to when I do interviews, you know, and that's just kind of the, that's another interesting thing to note. Totally. Of, of who, you know, who I end up having conversations with. But this, I, this whole, you know, what, what I'm learning is how often people have, you know, other, whether it's the black community, whether it's, um, you know, in the civil rights movement, where whether it's, the queer community, there's often a call to like, you know, can you talk to your own people about this? Like white people talk to white people. And that, so that I want to, you know, I feel like there's both this idea of amplifying stories and then really putting the mirror up and looking at my own experience and then, you know, not, not suggesting like, oh, let me, let me just put a spotlight on race issues, which are, you know, which are, the issues of people of color. No, 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 no. This race issue is our issue of whiteness and white supremacy. Mm. So, so then, you know, it's, so I feel like that's been a real, um, that's been really helpful to me because it makes, you know, allows me to see value in, in telling my own story instead of feeling this, this kind of like silenced feeling or a shame feeling that I don't, that my story doesn't need to be heard or, or, deserve to be heard but instead that it is um when we break open that experience of whiteness and we start really talking about it where where then are the opportunities for other white people to go oh well i guess i have i guess i have experienced white privilege even though i'm poor even though i grew up you know even though i i you know came up you know pulled myself up by my bootstraps or whatever people's stories are that they can maybe see themselves reflected in those stories. And then we, you know, who identify as white can, can, can work with each other <laughs> to get out of this mess. Yeah. Um, Meryl, as you engage in those tough conversations, do you have tools that you use to navigate them in a productive way that's not shaming and finger pointing, but in a way that's, you know, trying to spread ownership and responsibility and accountability? That's a great, I mean, that I feel like that is the question because, with, and I think that is also relevant to, say, climate change, you know, things things that just feel so overwhelming to people, myself included, that it's very difficult to make room to look at them boldly in the face. And I, for me, it also comes up, or I think that people kind of get into like an eye roll thing with me about 
cultural appropriation when I start talking about cultural appropriation in pop music and and I'm I'm discovering that there like there's fatigue <laughs> you know people have this a, a limited capacity to hear about the problems you know how problematic cultural appropriation can be would that and, would you call that white fragility exactly <laughs> yeah I'm going to interrupt again quickly just for clarification if you're wondering what is white fragility this is a concept I was recently introduced to, and it's a term that was coined by Robin D'Angelo, and she has a really great book out called White Fragility, which I highly recommend. She suggests that as white people, we have a really hard time talking about race. We're extremely fragile when it comes to having conversations about it. One of the reasons that we get really uncomfortable and defensive at the mere suggestion that we're connected to the system of racism is because that suggestion goes against our concept of ourselves as good moral people. Yeah, it, it does feel like through these systems of inequality and injustice that we're all so a part of and mm -hmm. entwined in. Right. Um, yeah, because of that, we have such little stamina to have uncomfortable and charged conversations about race without exactly. getting really worked up. Exactly. And without taking it personally mm. and feeling defensive very quickly and guilty and then you know, it's all about me. And right. So how do we, um, I hear that word resilience, you know, how do we mm. build resilience and how do we, you know, how, how do I continue to talk about these things and also, you know, take care of myself, which, which I, so in terms of tools, something that I've, I mean, I'm, I'm working a lot of tools. Yeah. <laughs> my tools, my tools are first of all, educating myself. So, you know, now we're in this, I, I feel like we're in the kind of golden age of understanding whiteness. Yeah. So we have these terms like white fragility now. That is so helpful to me to have language around, about this not being just a personal thing, but this being, like, like you say, systematic. So, so, you know, there is a racial conditioning that I have been brought up in, and maybe that allows me to shed some of this personal, feeling personally... Um, I wouldn't say culpable. That's not the word I'm looking for. But but that it's um, my fault. You know, it's sure. just is. Yeah. It is what it is. And and I you know I think that you know the first Junior's album before it was called Bird Brains was called White Guilt. Really? And, yeah. Oh, and wow. that it, you know I think rightly so people said you know I don't like White Guilt might be in there but it you know to frame the entire thing sure. <laughs> that way. <laughs> I've thought a lot about the usefulness or the uselessness of guilt. And it's it's useful up to the point where it propels us into some kind of action. Like if I have enough pain, then I'm willing to take action. But when it starts, when it goes over that line of being paralyzing, that's when it's become, that's when it's, you know, become just not useful anymore and right. when it when i need to clear that out in in order to and and that's where these ideas you know this learning about systems of 
racism, systems of white supremacy, you know, that, that there's a reason why these systems are in place and that we have the behavior and, and reactions that we do. That information in and of itself is just so helpful to, to move forward. So a lot of, a lot of what I feel like our tools are, are books and articles and real, you know, I would say also like specific articles, articles that are, are not going to cause reactivity in me but that are like very simply informative (laughs) this is what white fragility is (laughs) this is what it might look like and then for me another tool is that I have now a growing community of people that I can go to when I have uncomfortable painful confusing racialized experiences in life and that that is becoming more and more a really crucial piece of this for me is is knowing who to talk to and when to talk to them and making sure that you know that i have you know i feel like i'm i'm having both conversations with friends of color around things like how this how white supremacy and and white privilege show up in in the sphere of music and the music industry and those are often, you know, feel like really charged conversations for me, but feel really important. And then also the conversations that I know are more appropriate to have with white people and, you know, and not just any white people, but white people that I know are doing this work on themselves and have this kind of fluency that, you know, like I hear that you have of having examined a lot of this stuff already, having, um, you know, having practiced yeah. what, it, what it is to kind of hold these um, hold these things up to the light a little bit more. Yeah. I love that you use that, the WAIT acronym. I, <laughs> I was introduced to that in, uh, not surprising, a meditation seminar that I was taking on wise speech. Mm-hmm. And I would like to ask you about <laughs> your, your, about your um, experience taking the six-month anti-racism meditation workshop at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland and uh-huh. uh, how that informed the the songwriting process on this new record if if it did yeah i mean you know i think a lot of it was was maybe indirect i and i was very very conscious and still am conscious of um of the confidentiality of that experience yeah you know it was it was in, you know intentionally a very vulnerable a place where we could be vulnerable and totally but absolutely and i i think something that it you know, another another tool for me has been the um, the practice of of mindfulness and meditation. That is, I, th- I think, a form. It, it builds resilience. You know, how comfortable can I get with being uncomfortable, and how you know how willing am I to let things um, arise and pass? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in doing so rather than reacting to it, you are just noticing and observing it. Exactly. Exactly. And that that is so useful for this stuff. So powerful. Yeah. And and also that, you know, because I think when I shut down is when I feel like I, I just can't bear anymore because this is, you know, because because it's challenging my my core belief about myself. And and I think that this idea of the good white self was something that that was brought up a lot in the in the East Meditation workshop. Of you know we're we're all you know we're all these all these white people are sitting in this space because we want to do good. Yeah. <laughs> we want to be good. We want to do 
rights. We want to be part of a justice movement. You know, we want to be part of making things in the world better. And we get attached to that. And that, you know, just that, that, um, I think what I, a lot of what I learned in that room was, and, and in, you know, conversations with people was, first of all, how common our experiences were, and then also how different our experiences were. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, that, but, but being able to really laugh at um, both this kind of collective experience of, of attempting to be good white people and the constant failure at that and, you know, wearing, wearing that really lightly. And then also, you know, where, where I personally come, come to this work from. So for me, really understanding how I have a very specific lens, you know, one lens is that I make a living doing something that is very much built on the hard work of people of color. Yeah. Very, very, very much. And I think most of us as, as white people can say that, but I think specifically pop music is so clearly built on that and so clearly is built on a history of of people of color not getting what they deserve for the work that they've done that um that i have that very specific weight and and feeling of of responsibility and confusion yeah thanks for saying that um i'm in the middle of reading this book that i want to just share with you it's called against purity living ethically in compromised times uh, mm. written by Alexis Shotwell, who's a professor of sociology and anthropology at a school in Canada. And a lot of the book mm. is about collective memory and our histories of slavery and colonialism, both in Canada and in, in the States. And, and she has this great quote that I wanted to share with you that I think is tied to what you just said. She says, any capacity we have to resist colonial oppression is in part based on benefiting from colonial oppression. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm always, I'm always, there's always going to be a problem with, it's problematic for me to be writing an album and making money off of conversations of, of white privilege. <laughs> like mm. it, that's inherently problematic. And yet, you know, I, I guess the choice that I made in the, 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 you know, the idea was, and the, and the um, feedback that I got was that this would be more beneficial than harmful. Yeah. You know, that I, that I'm, that this is still toward a push into, into healing and into justice and into liberation for all people. And, and that, that is the push that I am trying to be part of and, and attempting to be part of. And that's going to, that's going to be flawed. It's going to be problematic. Yeah. It's going to be, um, no, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think when, have you heard of this book or read Emergent Strategy? No. Okay. Well, I, what was the one you were reading? Against Purity? Against Purity, yeah. Alexis Shotwell. So cool. So I have, I would deeply recommend this book, Emergent Strategy. Awesome. Which a lot of what she talks about in it, Adrienne Marie Brown, is this idea of the, the smallest, the smallest relationship or interaction um, the idea of fractals she talks a lot about. In, in fact, we're starting a, a new a fund, you know, that we, a dollar for every one of our tickets go, goes into this fund. We did that last time around water issues. Cool. And it's going to be called the Fractal Feedback Fund. Awesome. <laughs> which sounds a little cheesy to me saying it out loud, but it's sounds the great. idea. It's very inspired by Adrienne Marie Brown and her idea of 
you know, fractals that like the smallest piece is is the same shape as the bigger piece that is created from, you know, multiples of the same smaller shape. So and, and you know, we have this limited capacity as human beings. You know, the, it's part of a tragedy of being a human being is, is how limited we are. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I have to I have to think that when we just in our very flawed and imperfect way, and, I, and that's why I think that would be really interesting to read that against Purity Book. But there are serious ripples when we when we do important work, when, when we do anything. Mm. So, you know, if I'm, um, I've been thinking a lot about my personal capacity because I feel, um, I'm feeling almost 40. <laughs> I'm feeling that the kind of energy shift of growing older and having less of that kind of frantic 20s energy of I got to make a band and I got to go on tour and I got to get in my Chevy and I got to drive a thousand miles and you know I don't have that same kind of energy anymore so where are these um real I mean just the conversation that you and I are having right now like what there there are going to be ripples of this conversation and you know we don't need to kid ourselves that we're changing the world (laughs) with this one conversation however that this that this is touching other people. And it, if that's the case, how do I bring right into my relationships and my, you know, my interactions with, with fans, with strangers, with people I don't know, with people I do know, how do I imbue those with the same um, philosophy or, or, you know, ideals that I want to be living? Yeah, I love that. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I think one of the things to me that is so cool about your music is it is imbued with these ideals and these themes, um, you know, and in doing so, you you explore some heavy and difficult topics, um, but they're also, like, embedded in super fun dance grooves, um, and it, it feels like, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, are you ever concerned about maybe being too confrontational or, you know, are you concerned about alienating your your audience with your lyrics um or do you oh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes i mean concerned like i try not to let it uh, let it in that way of it uh, from a songwriter point of view i think i can't write songs if i'm like well what do people want me to say sure um you know uh so i try to stay a little bit sheltered when i'm writing because i i really need to protect this um Honesty, you know, really what what is my honest stuff coming up and then letting that being a purity. But like how how can how pure can I let that be um, before I start letting in um, the idea that people will be listening to this music? And um, but of course, I mean, and, and I think I already have alienated people. I don't know. You know, I think our fans are really open to and really want to you know these are things that they're thinking about too and yeah. so to have music to accompany that journey feels strengthening yeah feels, you know but um but of course and and that's okay i mean i think this you know like this idea that we're talking about of white fragility you know a lot of people want music for an escape a lot of people want music so that they don't have to think of about reality a lot of people um you know and i i guess i that that's how i hope to reel some people in with the with the danceability and the like just sheer joy and fun of the music 
And then, you know, if they're anything like me, the lyrics are really secondary for me when I'm listening to music. So, yeah. so can, you know, can it just be this music that's that's enjoyable? And then like, what? Huh? What did she just say? <laughs> what is that? What is white centrality? You know what I mean? Right. Just to quickly provide insight into white centrality, this is another concept from Robin D'Angelo, and it's the idea that we live in a white dominant context. The messages that we're receiving from mainstream culture tell us that white people are more valuable than non-white people. You might be thinking, well, what do you mean? So a couple examples that D'Angelo gives are, as white people, we are central in history textbooks and the way history is told and not told. We have centrality in media and advertising. The way we talk about, quote, good neighborhoods and good schools. Think about who who is in those. Who's represented there? These are all messages that we internalize and they come from and they perpetuate white superiority. My question to myself is, can I let go of my fear around because this is my livelihood so like alienate too many people and i don't have a job anymore (laughs) um but can i let go of that really primal fear of needing to um take care of myself and put a, a you know a roof over my head enough to to let these words come out when it feels like they really need to yeah as i mean so as you've both simultaneously gained more fans and popularity and also grown as an artist. Yeah. Has that internal dialogue changed at all as far as, you know, how emboldened you feel to say certain things? You know, I think I I think probably I'm I'm more I mean, I'm probably emboldened in a way that is maybe not <laughs> maybe I feel <laughs> bolder than I ought to, oh, you know, because no. I because I well just just in that, you know, I feel so supported by our by our fans. I mean, that, you know, that people are really listening to this and really consuming it and that we we are making a living doing this. So that's, that's very emboldening, you know. And also, I think, you know, I'm emboldened by the work of, you know, organizers, activists who are, who are so deeply committed to justice and have been doing that work before Trump and will continue to do that work after Trump. And, you know, just as I understand the, the experiences of people who, um, who are really in battle, what really feels like a battle, and people who are actually, I mean, actually feel physically threatened as they go through this, as they walk through my same community, you know, that I'm, I'm walking in a, a place and having a very different experience of how my body is is or is not safe and that emboldens me because i'm like if if you know look at all i mean look at i think of the the women who started black lives matter i mean 
they are putting themselves at such risk. I mean, people, they get threatened. They have, you know, they have to use uh, bodyguards at times when, you know, things feel really charged. They, they are, they have grown up as people of color in this country, which means that they are seeing constantly black bodies be devalued. I mean, dehumanized. So if all I'm saying is like, I'm using white centrality in a freaking pop song, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like just, just to be right sized about what my risk actually is. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you making a song like Colonizer, while you know, while yes, it has risks, it's important to look at it in perspective of what risk is to someone else. Exactly. You know, exactly. Um, You know, I, I mean, I remember um, sending the song Jamaican to to one of my friends early on, yeah. and you know, a, a friend that I really trusted musically. We had we had been you know playing music together um, for years, and and he his reaction was kind of like it wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> it was like this is weird, mm. and I was like, I know it's weird. <laughs> I really know it's weird. And I, and I think probably, probably what he was, I have to ask him about it, but like maybe what he was reacting to is like, the words are a little sketchy, you know, cause you're, are you talking to yourself? If you're talking, are you talking to Jamaican people? <laughs> I hope not. You know, are you right. like where um, it's, it's very muddled and it's, con- it's a confused, it's not a message song. It's like the voices in my head song and the paranoid the paranoid Meryl song Um, and and I just you know I I think that that's to say you know from the beginning of seniors the music felt very vulnerable and very confusing I was really sensitive to people's like or dislike or judgment or uh, feedback about it from the beginning because I had those same questions. Like, why, you know, what does it mean for a white chick from, you know, who's living in her aunt and uncle's basement in Northampton, (laughs) Smith College graduate, what does it mean for me to be really into dancehall reggae right now and then make, like, singer-songwriter ukulele songs with with that, you know, (laughs) that influence? Like, what is that? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know. Yeah. But I love, I mean, you're thinking about it. You're questioning. That's oh, yeah. that's the importance. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I feel like the way you just talked about 
that song of, of Bird Brains, it reminds me of Gangsta. Is that a f- fair comparison? With mm-hmm. this sort of like, what did sure. you call it? The uh, confused Meryl or uh, paranoid? Par- yeah, paranoid okay. Meryl, exactly. Um, where it's like, right? Is she? Are you talking? Who are you talking to? And then you you do kind of flip it to look inward. Um, mm-hmm. But I, one of the things I really like, I mean, I, about gangsta specifically, I love this. Um, you know, you say, "What's a boy to do if he'll never be a gangsta?" It's it feels non judgmental while still questioning. Um, there's sort of this oh, more yeah. more of a curiosity than a re- than a judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Which I think, you know, I think that is that that idea of questions versus solutions, you know, questions. Even as we're having this discussion, I'm realizing how much of this is like, you know, asking, you know, what, like, what's up with this instead of what's that about? Uh, this, this is that. Right. What's that about? Exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. What's that about? What's that um, what, you know, instead of this is what this is about, you know, for instance, just even the idea of, of cultural appropriation, when I, a lot of time when I talk to people who love me, they're like, we just get over it already. You're, you're fine. Like you've done, you know, you've done so much in this arena or like you talk about this so much and everybody, you know, every musician is a cultural appropriator. We're all appropriating each other. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, won't you just forgive yourself? And I think that the assumption um, that a lot of people make when I talk about cultural appropriation is that I'm like, therefore, music is bad, or therefore, this is bad, and I'm going to try. And and I think that was that used to be an approach of mine was like, let me do everything I can to to be, again, a good white person. Right, or or pure, right? This this sort of fantasy uh of purity. Right, and what, I mean, right, which is a fantasy, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Which is a fantasy. But um, but like where, you know, can I, I think the more we're talking about this now, the more I see how white fragility is so woven into at least my white experience and the white experience of so many other white people I know, which is like, you know, no, but let's not feel bad. Let's like anything but to, you know, anything to avoid feeling bad, anything including being pretty irrational about, you know, why, like, why can't we just have a conversation about this? So, you know, Gangsta was written about, um, about some Asian kids in a neighborhood here, around here in Oakland. Um, everyone assumes that it's a, a song about a, a white person, I think, or white people. But the same question was, you know, it's it's like a when it's an open question, then it can be about so many different things, and um, and that's certainly the kind of songwriting I'd prefer to do. I don't think, you know, I, I, again, really am interested in that both of the idea of, like, there isn't anything as purity. There isn't such a thing as purity, especially now. And there never was, yeah. you know? So so how then do we, can we wear these 
and you know, I think that's so useful wearing wearing them lightly. How do we wear them lightly, light enough so that we can engage with them and go, oh, that you know, I feel that makes me feel uncomfortable, or that that mm. feels really negative, or that feels really painful, and I'm feeling some guilt, and I, you know, and maybe I should talk about this with a white friend. Sure. <laughs> um, but just that is such a different and more gentle exploration, and. I, you know, I really hope that um, because that kind of gentle exploration is so new for me, um, because I have come from a place of such guilt and shame, uh, specifically around race and about and around cultural appropriation, that I really hope that there's, you know, in and maybe I, it's too much to think about, but in this album, that there's that there is a kind of allowing for multiple experiences of the music you know and i think of that song honesty of you know the invitation to close your eyes get in touch with the physical sensations you know like that's all from that meditation practice of um you know this invitation to to just sit with stuff you know and not maybe not take it on so personally maybe Uh, it's funny. Honesty kind of reminds me of, um, well, that you know, you you ask the question, "Do you really want to know?" Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it sort of it, it it triggers in my head that your song from Nicky Nack, "Look Around," let's not pretend mm-hmm. that the world around us isn't falling. Mm-hmm. Um, on you know, there's <laughs> on the one hand, there's what sounds good, and the other hand, what's true. Mm-hmm. Exactly. On the one hand, there's what sounds good. On the other, there's what's true Beware the empty promise All around me, all around you Let's not pretend That the world around us isn't falling But look around, look around, look around And again, it, yeah, it's like this idea that this isn't always going to be comfortable or easy or f- always feel good, um, but there are conversations to be had, and we, you know, have a responsibility to, to stand up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. At least, and at least, you know, that to me allows me to feel the good things more truly as well. Like to feel joy more truly. That that it's not joy to cover up. Pain. It's joy coexisting with pain, and that that to me has just become something that feels so so much more true. That kind of joy that can coexist with you know that can be in reality instead of in fantasy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, 
that word fantasy I feel like it's come up a lot in this conversation I and it also I mean you know coast to coast another song on the new record I mean is another song that I don't know I guess trying to confront reality right mm-hmm. um in that song is there also a an attempt to to understand how polarized we've become also mm-hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and that and that was written a, a good part of that was written before before the election which was you know a a huge buildup of of polarization i don't know the language all the words mean fear this land is sinking as i try to get clear knowledge and wisdom the answer's right here burn the sage and sow a seed nobody left to feed coast to coast right left right left And and you know I I have family in in various parts of this country. Yeah. I have family, you know, family who I'm sure if we got down into it would have really different political views. And that has really been a blessing to 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 see how it's we just, you know, demonizing people that we don't agree with is just as dangerous as engaging in the behaviors that we accuse them of, mm. you know. I just really believe that. I and do I, too. Thanks for saying that. And it feels like we've become more and more reactionary and um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. demonizing of those who don't share our beliefs. Exactly. Which is what they, whoever they is, that's what they want. <laughs> yeah. I mean I think that's again systematic. If, sure. If we're all pitted against each other. Um, and, and certainly that happens, you know, I, I think a lot about how whiteness came to exist anyway, that, you know, before this idea of, of white racial supremacy, there were a lot of poor working white people who identified way more with, you know, I, I was just reading about that book, Sugar in the Blood, um, about about Barbados and you know there are plenty yeah. like the the white workers that had they had no rights they were I mean they were basically indentured servants and so they had much more in common with with black slaves from Africa than they did with their owners with mm-hmm. with these people who had power over them and it wasn't until there were literally more black bodies on the island and the white owners went oh shit yep. <laughs> we're in trouble mm-hmm that they started these, you know, that, that the whole, the, you know, other thing came in, like they're, they are other, you better get with us because at least that, you know, you have a a leg up over these people from Africa because you, because of your skin color. And that, that was totally a, a very political move. And, um, and so I just, you know, I think it's, you know, we get so, um, into these ugly, ugly conversations on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, so much is is 
you know, us, them, us, them, us, them. And it makes, it makes me really mad. Yeah, <laughs> I me gotta too. say like yeah. the, the white liberal, um, I don't know what to call it, but, but there's a real sense of entitlement and of, um, we, you know, we're so much more enlightened right. or right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it makes me mad. And I think it's, there's, there's a, a program that deals with, it's called the untraining and it's like, specifically like white liberal racism because that is so real and and white you know i even feel myself distancing from the word liberal because i and preferring the word progressive because it feels more true but but that you know we have a lot to answer to (laughs) as white liberals you know and um a lot and a lot to explore in ourselves that we deny ourselves when we think we're the right and um, yeah, so that's a lot of what Coast to Coast is about. Yeah. Do you feel like, I mean, you mentioned some family members. Do you feel like whether they're family members or audience members or whatever, kind of as you tour, do you feel like you're able to engage with a variety of political ideologies? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think so. I think so. And I really hope so. Yeah. That would be the best. Yeah. Um, I know. I know that around the election, I just, you know, Trump is just so not okay with me that I know that I lost some people who I who were Trump supporters and fans of ours which which to me was like this weird realization moment where I was like wait what we have Trump supporters who are our fans and then Mm. and then also like horror horror like how could you listen to this music and and also vote for Trump but but then the realization like oh wait of course that that's totally possible and am I, did I just blow it <laughs> did I just blow the opportunity to be in conversation with people who voted for Trump and I really hope not I really that would be really a tragedy and, and again I think that's you know this idea of white people needing to talk to other white people um, it might not be something that I'm particularly like you know interested in doing <laughs> or wanting to do um, but I feel like that is where the work is, is, you know, I thought, I think I thought the work was in trying to be a better white person around people of color or, you know, trying, just trying to make myself right and more right and more right and more perfect as a, a good white person. And now I'm like, I'm hearing that the work might be in having extremely messy conversations with other white people. Yeah. Um, which feels like a really interesting challenge. Yeah. Meryl, thank you so much for your time. This has been really, really great. This has been awesome. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. And really, I'm so thrilled that you're doing it. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much, Meryl. Thank Have a great day. So okay. Bye. Bye. A big thank you to Meryl Garbus for her time and interest in this project. 
Anything that was mentioned throughout the conversation, you can find all of that listed in the show notes at samewavelengthpodcast.com. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. It's Same Wavelength Podcast. And on Twitter, Same Wave Pod. I post snippets and previews there of upcoming episodes and other fun stuff, so make sure you're following those. If you dig the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it on whatever platform you're using. That really helps me to reach more folks. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Merrill's words and ideas in their most honest form. Thank you to the University of Minnesota Press for their permission to let me quote the line from Alexis Shotwell's book, Against Purity. Thank you to Tunyard's label, management, and publisher for permission to let me use the songs throughout the conversation. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk. It's called Turn the World Around. I also use an instrumental version of our song The Story of My Morals at the beginning of this episode. You can find both of those songs in the playlist in the show notes for this episode, samewavelengthpodcast.com. Thank you to my bandmates, Brett and Dave, for being cool with me using these songs for the podcast. On the next episode of Same Wavelength, I'll be talking with Anais Mitchell. Suddenly the light turned on for me that it felt more important or more more like my role to tell stories and kind of humanize a political situation than to write about it as if I was writing like a letter to the editor. At some point you kind of have to make the choice like, well, is this a letter to the editor (laughs) or is this a song? Anais Mitchell's musical Town is currently on Broadway. It's a super cool retelling of the Eurydice and Orpheus myth. We talk about the relevance of that classic Greek myth today and also her evolution as a songwriter over her career. I'm Michael Sokol. Thanks for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you.